The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, we're going to continue our series in Ecclesiastes. So if you'd like to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 16. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Let's come before God in prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for those scenes in the New Testament, in the, in the Gospels, where we see you walking and talking with your disciples, doing life with them, being with them, loving them. Jesus, we thank you that you love us today and that you want to speak to us today, that you want to be with us today and, and, um, and teach us how to love the way you love. So, Father, we pray that we would be open to, to your spirit and, and all that you have to say to us through your word. In Christ's name we pray this into your glory. Amen. So uh, you may have heard uh, this, this question before. If you die tonight, do you know for certain that you are going to go to heaven? For some of you, that was a very, very significant question because that question got you thinking about God, got you thinking about Jesus, about faith in the first place. That question led to a whole series of other questions that got you on this journey. And if someone hadn't asked you that question at some point in time, you know, you may not be here in church this morning. You you may not be pursuing Jesus with your life today. So thank God someone asked you had the sense to ask you that question. You know, that that was literally a life-changing moment because it redirected the course of your life and set you off in a completely different direction. Thank God. That was how significant it was. Uh, But for others of you, you may have heard this question and been asked this question, not just once or twice, but an annoying number of times. I, I don't know how many times that is, but enough to be annoying, right? And to you, your experience of that question is the complete opposite. Right, that, that, that question doesn't seem significant to you at all. In fact, it, it, it's hard to see what bearing or relevance that question has on your life right here today on planet Earth. And so whenever someone asks you that question, you want to ask them back, why are you, why are you asking me this? Well, I, I can tell you why they're asking you this, in case you don't already know, right? The, 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 when a Christian asks you that question, what they're doing is they're, they're baiting you. Okay? They're baiting you into a spiritual conversation that, because they want to hit you with the gospel. They want to present the gospel to you. Okay? If, if, you've, uh, if you've ever get to the point 
where you're kind of, and you may not be there just yet, but if you ever get to the point where you're kind of fed up and sick of being asked this question by your Christian friends, uh, but you're not quite sure how to dodge that bullet and avoid that awkward conversation, here's what you do, okay? You put your hands in your pockets, because it always works better that way. So you put your hands in your pockets, and you you go like this, and you go, don't know, don't care, right? You you shrug your shoulders, you say, don't know, don't care, and and nine times out of ten, that kills it, right? Because honestly, most of the time, we don't know where to go from there, right? So, so that's how you deal with, with that question. Um, I know when you were dragged along to church this morning by a Christian friends or family, you, you may not have been expecting to get anything useful out of this session, but there you go. You know, sometimes you, you never can tell, right? So, so I, I've honestly, I've asked that question before. Of course I have. And you know why I asked that question? Because I want to present the gospel. I want to announce, I want to share the gospel. Trouble is, that question doesn't work anymore, not the way it used to. You see, there's a, there's a problem with the question itself. And the problem is that the question itself assumes too many points of agreement. It, it assumes that we agree that there is a God. It assumes that we agree that there is a heaven. It assumes that we agree that there is a soul that's going to survive this life and go into the next. It assumes that there is some sort of post-mortem existence, post-mortem experience. It assumes that we agree that we could turn to the Bible to find answers to these questions. It assumes that we agree that that the Bible carries some sort of authority. Well, in a day and age, in a cultural situation where there was massive amounts of agreement on all of that, on all those issues I just mentioned, then, hey, ask away. I mean, that question might make some sort of sense in that situation. But today, in in the broader culture, there is a massive question mark over every single one of those things I just mentioned. Our our culture says, is is there a God? The culture says, I don't know. Is there a heaven? Who can say? Is is there a soul that survives? Is there a post-mortem existence? Who can say? Does the Bible carry some sort of authority? I don't know. How can you say that? Who can tell? I remember trying to engage people in spiritual conversations on the streets of of Bristol, which is a a university, secular university city in, in England. Well, all the cities are secular over there. Right, so... Uh, it's, it's not the easiest place to try and do that sort of thing, right? To ch- try and uh, engage people in spiritual conversations in a, in, a, in a city like that. It's not the easiest thing in the world. And what I found was that when I tried to engage people on the whole conversation of what happens when you die, do you know what happens if you go to heaven when you die, do you, what happens after death, all of that, these walls just went up. I mean, it just shut the conversation down. They weren't even vaguely they weren't even vaguely interested. There was no discussion. People would be like, oh, I'm glad you're one of those lot, and I'm going this way, right? And they'd walk off. What I noticed was that if the conversation turned to matters of, of justice and, and how to resolve certain injustices in this world, suddenly they had an opinion. They were engaged in the conversation. They, had, they, they, they were involved in, 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 in the talk and the conversation. Completely different reaction. Completely different reaction. Now, now that was, man, going on nearly a couple of decades ago in a city like Bristol. But what I'm finding is the exact same thing going on here in Temple, Texas today. So some friends from around here, they, they've been away from church for several years. And when you ask them why, why? It's not because it's not they've uh, suddenly fell into some sort of really immoral lifestyle. No, these are moral, upstanding people. They were generous, compassionate people. No, it's not like that at all. When you ask them why, one of the reasons why is they said, well, we just got fed up of hearing the same message every single week on a Sunday. 
at the church we were attending. Here's how to go to heaven when you die. Here's how to go to heaven when you die. But what about justice and injustice? Here's how to go to heaven when you die. But what about the poor and poverty and slavery? Here's how to go to heaven when you die. But what about oppression and war? Here's how to go to heaven when you die. Here's how to go to heaven. And, and eventually they just felt, well, everything that we're concerned about, these things that we're concerned about, don't even get mentioned. They don't even get hinted at in church on a Sunday morning. And so they wandered off, away from church for years. Um, now, I'm not suggesting that everyone in this postmodern generation, postmodern culture is all about living and giving toward that direction. Some of them really are, some of them not so much. They're, look, there are people in previous generations who've done a lot more for fighting injustice. I get that. That's not the point. The point is, is that this culture, this generation is, not, is, is far more attuned to questions and sensitive to questions of uh, justice and injustice in a way that they are not at all attuned to questions of what happens when you die and life after death and heaven and all of that. There's just, there isn't that sensitivity in our culture to those types of questions. It just isn't. That's just where we are. So one culture emphasizes one thing, one generation perhaps emphasizes one thing, another emphasizes something else. So which is it? Which is it? Is it, is it life after death that really counts? Or or is it justice in the here and now that really matters? Well, interestingly enough, Ecclesiastes says that both of these questions are important. Ecclesiastes says both of these questions are, actually it does more than that. It doesn't just say that both these questions are important. It asks both of these questions together. And the reason why Ecclesiastes asks both of these questions together, questions of death and questions of injustice, because from the point of view of this book, these questions are either going to make sense of each other and depend upon each other for their meaning, or, because after all this is Ecclesiastes, they're going to render each other meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, right? Let me, let me say that again. Ecclesiastes asks both of these questions together because from the point of view of this book, uh, these questions will either make sense out of each other and depend upon each other for their meaning, or they will render each other meaningless. So look, here is how Ecclesiastes asked the question of, um, of justice. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. This really gives voice to our culture's angst. Where is the justice in this world? Hey, the question's asked in different ways, isn't it? Sometimes it's asked in a more philosophical way. Look, if there's a God, and if God is good, and if God and God is all-powerful, then how can there be evil? How can there be suffering? How can there be injustice? I think that's a philosophical conundrum for, for most theists I know. Sometimes it's asked like this, if God is good, then how come bad things happen to good people? Or if there is a God at all, if he exists at all, then how can evil prevail, and how can the wicked get away with so much? Same question, asked in different ways. A... Uh, a couple of friends of mine about three, about three weeks ago, they had uh, had the chance to watch, just on Netflix, a series of uh, comedians, stand-up comedians, uh, mostly based out in, in New York. And both these friends, independently of each other, made the exact same observation. And here's what they said. They, they said that these comedians were no longer just mocking Christians and some of our idiosyncrasies, 
They're no longer just mocking evangelical subculture, which, you know, frankly, that, that's kind of easy to do, right? I mean, you, you, you and I could probably do a better job than they can, right? Because we, we, we've lived it. We're, on the, we're insiders. So we, we kind of, we, we've, we've experienced it. We've, we've enjoyed it and we've endured it, right? We, we've enjoyed it and, and we've endured it at times, right? So, so I get that. We get that. But these guys are no longer just mocking evangelical subculture and, and mocking uh, Christians and some of their idiosyncrasies. What they saw was these guys were mocking God. They are utterly ridiculing God and utterly ridiculing the very idea that God could even possibly exist. And, and these friends were at first a little bit taken aback. And, and I guess I would be too if it weren't for the fact that, you know, growing up in England, I just saw this stuff on TV all the time. And this is just standard fare. You see, by the time I was a kid, these, these, uh, there wasn't much of a church for them to mock. Right? You have to have a, if there's no significant body of people to mock, then what do you do? Well, you just turn to mocking God instead, and that, that's what they did. Well, well, these friends were saying that what they've noticed is that this, they made the same observation independently of each other, that this shift, this shift has happened here as well. Um, incidentally, if, if, you ever, if you ever want to get a pulse on the culture, well, actually, any, if you're going into a foreign culture as well, but it's the same here. If you want to get a pulse on the culture, ask to listen to the comedians. Take, take a bit of time, listen to their comedians. See how they're getting their laughs. So that will give you a pretty good cultural orientation. You'll get, you'll get a feel for where the culture is and where the culture's heading. Listen to the comedians. Well, um, the, the grounds on which some of these comedians were, were mocking God and ridiculing the very existence of God is this. I saw, I looked for judgment, I looked for justice, and wickedness was there, and wickedness was there. I, I guess what these um, comedians feel, and, and you, actually you may have been made to feel this as, as well, I, I don't know, but um, they feel that these questions, to ask these questions is to walk away from God. That these questions are the grounds of unbelief. That these questions come from outside faith and that these questions themselves are an attack on faith itself. You ever been made to feel that? You ever been made to feel that, that these, these questions are the grounds of unbelief, that these questions come from outside faith, and that these questions are themselves an attack on faith itself? Philosopher and literary theorist Stanley Fish uh, says this. I've, I've quoted him before. It was about three or four years ago I used this quote. Uh, he, he says this to say um, on, on that. He says, These objections that skeptics make to religious thinking are themselves part of religious thinking. Rather than being swept under the rug of a seamless discourse, they are the very motor of that discourse, impelling the conflicted questioning of theologians and poets, not to mention Jesus who cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me in every verse of the book of Job? Let me just read that to you again. These objections that skeptics make to religious thinking are themselves part of religious thinking. Rather than being swept under the rug of a seamless discourse, they are the very motor of that discourse, impelling the conflicted questioning of theologians and poets. In other words, you might imagine that these questions come from outside the biblical story, but they're right there on the inside. These questions, far from being alien to the biblical narrative, are crucial to moving the biblical narrative forward. That they're crucial to the biblical plotline, and where these questions aren't being asked explicitly, they're always simmering right there beneath the surface of every text. Well, of course, here in Ecclesiastes, they're not beneath the surface. It's asked explicitly. 
looked for justice, wickedness was there. For judgment, wickedness was there. If that's you this morning, if, if you have ever been made to feel like these questions, to ask these questions is to walk away from God, that this is, these questions are the grounds of unbelief. If you've ever been made to feel like that, these questions come from outside faith and are themselves an attack on faith, I, I want you to know this. Okay? And if you, don't, if you don't walk away with anything else this morning, please stop right here and grab a hold of this. Okay? It is the exact opposite. I want you to know it's the exact opposite. It is when you seriously, not flippantly, mind you, seriously engage with these questions, seriously begin to ask these questions, that you find yourself squarely, standing squarely on biblical grounds. It's when you seriously wrestle with these questions, begin to ask these questions, that you will suddenly find yourself quite at home in the narrative world of the Bible. Because that is where these questions are asked the most clearly and sometimes asked the most loudly. Because sometimes they're not just asked, they are screamed, they are shouted. Read David's life, read the Psalms, read the book of Job, hear Jesus cry from the cross. And if you're wondering, well, hang on a second, how come these questions are there of all places? Why would these questions be screamed and shouted in the Bible before God of all places? Because in some sense, it's the only sensible place to ask questions like this. You see, if justice is going to have any substance, if your very strong sense of justice and injustice, of right and wrong, of good and evil, is going to have any substance, is going to have any meaning, if your sense of justice, if, there is any, if there's going to be any justice, then it's going to be with God. Because you see, apart from God... Your sense of justice, doesn't matter how strong it is and doesn't matter how noble you think it is, your sense of justice is nothing more than social convention, cultural phenomena. And those cultural phenomena, those social conventions are nothing more than the chemical reactions going on in the brains of individuals who make up that society. And those chemical reactions going on in the brains of individuals who make up that society are nothing more than the byproduct, the result of a series of genetic mutations down through the evolutionary chain. That's it. And I can tell you now that social convention, cultural phenomena, chemical reactions going on in the brains of individuals and, and, and the genetic mutations, these things are not enough to dignify your sense of your very real sense of justice with the weight of meaning. They're not enough to take your sense of justice seriously with the gravity that it deserves. And let me, let me be very, very clear about this, because I, I know some of you are thinking, well, you would say that because you're a Jesus freak, right? You, you follow after that Jesus, and you read the Bible, and, and you believe in God and all of that. So, you know, you would say that. You know, you're a Christian. They, you're, you're a pastor. You're a preacher, for crying out loud. They pay you to say this stuff, right? Even if you don't believe it, you're going to say it, because they pay you to. I understand your cynicism and all that, okay? But let, let me just be clear about this, as I have before. This is not me saying this. This is the consensus of some of the most influential atheistic philosophers. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about the continental tradition or the analytical tradition. You know, they're different traditions in philosophy, okay? It doesn't matter which way you go. This is the consensus of some of the most influential atheistic philosophers who have spent a long time trying to be consistent, if consistency is important to you. They're trying to be consistent and have spent a long time thinking this stuff through. 
And the reason why I know these guys have spent a long time thinking this stuff through is because I have spent a long time reading those guys. And let me tell you something. They are thorough. They are thorough. So let me just hit the pause button there. Okay, we're just going to stop for a second. I just want to very quickly recap what we just said. These questions of evil and injustice and suffering do not come from outside faith. They're right there on the inside. They're right there inside the biblical narrative, crucial to moving the biblical narrative forward. And the reason why we find them there, the reason why we find them so clearly defined and, and, and sometimes shouted there, is because it's only with God that these questions will ever be dignified with the weight of meaning. And perhaps, just maybe, dignified with a response. Well, we'll see. You know, um, this is why Ecclesiastes brings this before God and said, well, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. This is a glimmer of hope. There's a time where maybe God in this life will bring about some sort of judgment and justice. There's this glimmer of hope, this shaft of light in this dark tunnel that is Ecclesiastes. That's how Gary described it a few weeks ago when he kicked off the series, right? This dark tunnel with a few shafts of light in there. But this shaft of light, this glimmer of hope, disappears as quickly as it appeared. This shaft of light, as with every shaft of light in this book of Ecclesiastes, disappears into the same darkness, and that is the darkness of death itself. For he goes on to say, Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. Death disappears into the darkness of death. Terry Pratchett is a novelist, a fantasy novelist, like a a comic fantasy novelist. He, He kind of spoofs the fantasy genre and he's very funny and he has his whole series of novels and different characters appear and reappear in in different novels Uh, but there's one character who shows up in every single one of his novels and uh, and I guess because he shows up in all of our lives as well and that character is death there's this kind of personified personification of death and um, quite often in his novels the the greatest insights in his books are are put into death's mouth and uh, In this excerpt I'm going to read you, I'll put it up on the screen here. Death is having this conversation with this girl called Susan. And uh, incidentally, um, Death in his books always speaks in block capital letters, uh, as as you might imagine he he, he might do, right? Um, So, all right, said Susan, I'm I'm not stupid. You're, You're saying humans need fantasies to make life bearable. Really? As if it was some kind of pink pill? No. Humans need fantasy to be human, to be the place where the falling angel meets the rising ape. Tooth fairies, Santa Claus, little, yes, as practice, you have to start out learning to believe the little lies. So we can believe the big ones, yes, justice, mercy, duty, that sort of thing. They're not the same at all. You think so. Then take the universe and grind it down to the finest powder and sieve it through the finest sieve and then show me one atom of justice, one molecule of mercy. And yet, death waved a hand. 
and yet you act as if there is some ideal order in the world, as if there is some, some rightness in the universe by which it may be judged. Yes, but people have got to believe that. Or what's the point? My point exactly. My point exactly, says death. Terry Pratchett is, uh, he's an atheist. Solomon, who wrote Ecclesiastes, he's a theist. But here we find that atheists and theists agree. If death has a final word, if death has a final say, then, then what's the point, as Susan asks? My point exactly, says death. Death renders everything pointless. Death renders everything meaningless, including any sense of justice you have, including any justice that God might bring about in this life is rendered meaningless. This is what Ecclesiastes is saying. And so it turns out that if God is going to do something, if, if, if justice is going to mean something, if justice is going to have substance, if it's going to have any weight to it, then it's not just going to be before God, but it's going to be before a God who has done something or can do something or will do something about death itself. And so here it is. The entire Christian narrative converges on this point. This point that we've arrived at this morning where these questions of justice and these questions of death meet. You see, at the center of the Christian faith, it's, it's, look, it's not a marginal discussion on the margins of Christianity, mind you. This is at the center, at the very heart of the Christian faith. All of our questions of justice and suffering and innocent suffering and evil and uh, on the one hand, and all of our questions of death and what happens when you die on the other, all of these are intensified, they're radicalized, and they're focused on the death of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. And the question is, what is God going to do about this evil? What is God going to do about this injustice? What is God going to do about this particular death? Now, I know that some of you might be kind of sitting back and saying, well, hang on, I'm not, I'm not necessarily worried about that particular death or that particular injustice. I'm just worried about death and injustice in general. I understand that. I'm not asking you to believe anything right now. I'm not even asking you to care. What I'm making, making sure here is that we're getting the story straight. Let's just get the story straight first of all. Then we'll talk about belief and care and all that afterwards. Okay, so th this is the, the question for the Christian is so crucial. What does God do about this particular death? What does God do about this particular evil and injustice? Because the answer to that question is the Christian and New Testament response to death and, and injustice in, in general, but on the bigger scale. On the bigger scale. So what does God do about death and injustice? Now, this is the point where some of you are thinking, okay, now he's going to hit us with, here's how to go to heaven when you die. Right? Isn't that the Christian? Don't worry about death in this world. Don't worry about you know, uh, injustice in this world because you, know, you, you will go to heaven when you die. And that's the Christian consolation, isn't it? Well, you know, it's, it's absolutely true that there are places in the New Testament which talk about us, you and me, going to heaven when we die. Um, there's a place where Jesus says to the, to the thief on the cross who's put his faith in them, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. And there's this other place where Jesus says to his disciples, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. Interestingly enough, though, you know that word dwelling there? It's actually kind of a, a temporary dwelling place. It's a place that you would stop off on, on the way to someplace else. And, and then, of course, there's the place where Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. So absolutely, there are places all over the New Testament which talk about us going to heaven when we die. There are several places like that. 
Um, there are several places which, which talk about this, but do you know that if you were to scratch out each of those places in the New Testament, from your New Testament, which talk about us going to heaven, the Christian hope would remain intact. I'm serious. If you were to tear out that whole concept from the New Testament about us going to heaven, just tear it out of your Bibles, those pages where, where it is, the, the Christian hope would continue to be spelled out clearly and brightly as ever. And some of you are thinking, well, this is getting weird. I thought the whole point of being a Christian is you get to go to heaven when you die, isn't it? Nope. Nope. Now, I'm not saying that the Apostle Paul, if you were to go up to him, or, or who's your favorite uh, New Testament author? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, James, Peter, whoever it is. I like Paul. Okay, So if you were to go up to Paul and say, hey, Paul, do you know if you were to die tonight, you would spend eternity in heaven? Do you know for sure? I'm not saying he's going to stick his hands in his pockets and shrug his shoulders and go, don't know, don't care. He's not going to do that. But I think he might put his hands in his pockets, shrug his shoulders and go, well, that's part of my point, but that's not really the whole point. Do you want to hear the whole story? I think that's what he might do. I'm not saying he'll, he'll shrug his shoulders and go, don't know, don't care. But he, but he might shrug his shoulders and say, well, that's not my entire point. That's, that, do, you want to, do you want to hear the rest of the story? Because you see, the, the New Testament response, the Christian response to death and injustice is not we get to go to heaven when we die. The Christian response to death and injustice looks beyond life after death to this thing which someone's phrased as life after life after death. The Christian response is not so much about life after death, but about life after life after death. It looks beyond our immediate post-mortem experience and existence to this thing called resurrection. The Christian New Testament response to death and injustice is resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is both a promise and it is an invitation. And I want to, I want to look at those two things very briefly here and then we'll finish, okay? So first of all, the, the Resurrection of Jesus Christ is a promise. And it's a promise in this sense. Just as God has vindicated Jesus, because it is, after all, about him before it's about us, right? It's about, it's about the vindication of Jesus before it's about us. The resurrection of Jesus is about Jesus. Just as God has vindicated Jesus, and he has set this evil, this injustice to rights, his, his crucifixion, he's put this right. Just as God has reclaimed, restored, redeemed, resurrected Jesus' body from the grave, so too God wants to do that for his creation. God wants to reclaim, restore, redeem, resurrect his creation from its state of death and decay. What God has done for Jesus, God wants to do for his people and God wants to do for his creation. Let me put it another way. God is not defeated by death so that God has to beat a hasty retreat from his creation, surrendering his creation up to death. Death doesn't muscle God out of his own creation. God defeats death in creation through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and reclaims creation for himself. Think, think of it this way. Through the resurrection of Jesus, God is reversing the effects of injustice and evil and the effect, reversing the effects of death in Jesus as he resurrects him. And as God re reverses the effects of death and evil and injustice in Jesus in, through his resurrection, the resurrected Christ becomes the God's advanced promise to you and I that he is going to do this for us, that he wants to reverse the effects of death and injustice on us and in, this, in his creation. 
what God has done for Jesus, he wants to do for his people and he wants to do for his creation. So we have to stop seeing the resurrection of Jesus Christ as this kind of odd, random event in the way the world has always been. Sometimes I think we're not quite sure what to do with the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe it just means, few death's not the end, I get to go to heaven when I die. No, it doesn't just mean that. And sometimes we're not sure what we do about this parts where it talks about us being raised from the dead as well. What's that, what's that all about? We have to stop seeing the resurrection of Jesus Christ as just an odd, random event in the way the world has always been. But it is the beginning of a new world, the way the world has begun to be, the way the world is going to be. Now, let me say that just once more. You can write that down if you want. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not an odd, random event in the way the world has always been. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the beginning of a new world, the way the world has begun to be, the way the world is going to be. The resurrection of Jesus is God's promise of future justice. And I said the resurrection is also a promise, but it is also an invitation. It is God's invitation to you and I to partake, to participate in his justice here and now. Because we have this promise, because we know where all of this is going, we know where God is taking this, because we know that God wants to redeem, restore, um, resurrect his creation, because we know God is going to reverse the effects of death and reverse the effects of injustice on his creation, because we know this is where God is taking all of this, then God, the resurrection becomes an invitation to us to participate in, in God's justice here and now, to live and work in this life toward that. You see, it's, it's not, as some people have said, I think it was Karl Marx who famously said, uh, Christianity is the opium of the people. You know, you, you just uh, depoliticize people and pacify people by just giving them heaven. Don't worry about the injustice here. Shut up about that and just, just wait till you, you die and you'll have heaven. Pie in the sky when you die. But it's not that. Because when the New Testament talks about life after death, it looks beyond our immediate post-mortem existence. It looks to resurrection, not a disembodied spirit floating around in some ethereal heaven. In, in, in some sense, it looks beyond, as I said before, not life after death, but life after life after death. It, it looks beyond our immediate post-mortem experience to this thing called resurrection. So which is it? To return to our question at the beginning, which is it? Is it life after death that counts? Or is it justice in the here and now that really matters? Well, here's how someone's put it. If you believe in the New Testament vision of life after death, then you have to be concerned about injustice in this world. The New Testament vision for life after death compels us to fight for justice here and now with every act of justice pointing to God's future justice. And if you care about justice now, you have to care about life after death because it is God's future justice that actually infuses every act of justice in the here and now with meaning. Because you see, if death has the final say, then of course it renders justice meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, says the teacher. But the Christian hope is that justice will have the final say and that God's justice, one day God's justice, will render death meaningless. Meaningless. Let's come before God in prayer.